0: Welcome to the Coffee Entrepreneur Podcast.
1: Your breath is sweet sky pillow
0: you lie. This podcast will bring you insights to the world of coffee, entrepreneurship, and life's lessons. Over the next few episodes, we'll be relating directly to Instawriterder's latest book, The Coffee Entrepreneur which was released at Host in Milano 2019, and we'll be deep diving into the lessons throughout it. This podcast is brought to you by Espressology, free the coffee entrepreneur. Well, today we will be opening the book, page one, In straight up,
1: Welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome to be here. And, uh, yeah, great to be talking about Self-indulgent life. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So, page page one, when you first sort of get the book open, all good entrepreneurs should have something else they enjoy.
1: Yeah, right. I didn't realize that was page one, but I guess it is, yeah. I feel like to me that's page
0: one. I mean, that's the primary um, quote that, launches into the
1: book yeah.
0: creates the intrigue.
1: Yeah, and I guess that sort of also um, highlights the fact that we're not just working for the sake of working, that there's a richer tapestry to life, and there's other things that are way more important like family and relationships, and so we work hard, but we want to play hard when mm-hmm. we're young. Don't play so quite quite so hard when you get... A little bit more mature, shall I say. But, you know, there's still great joys to be had and great great things to do. So it's not like uh, you stop enjoying life. But the point of working is, say, uh, you enjoy the, the rich tapestry of life. Let's put it that way. Would you
0: say that your priorities changed throughout your, your entrepreneurship from, from the beginning into the middle and to where you are today?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's where wisdom is a beautiful thing. So I think… Or hindsight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> heights and it, it, well, someone said once, I think, you know, insight is 90% hindsight, which is not a bad way of thinking about it. But, yeah, definitely I think that as you Well, not everybody's the same, but in, in you know, different decades, so in your 20s you just got full of fire and energy and this is obviously a huge generalization, but you know, not necessarily so as strategic. In your thirties you start to think more strategically, but you still got all that fire and energy and then I, I think for me that my decade of my forties was where I figured out, okay, this is how you can maximize the good stuff, the enjoyable start of life, this is how you can minimize the crappy stuff that you're overindulged with in your, you know, as a as a youth. Mm-hmm. And um, and you kind of get a bit more wisdom and so you, you're thinking more and acting more strategically but still got the energy and the fire in your belly. And the 50s is kind of – well, for me anyway, the 50s was a huge, huge struggle of a decade just to stay you – know, keep my head above water. And But now it's sort of like, well, yep, want to work hard, use the talents that I've got to the best that I possibly can. But it's also a matter of um, just enjoying the, the journey which – it's a cliche, but then I think it's that wisdom of thinking: yeah, no, the actual activity that I'm doing at the time is the most important thing I can be doing at any given time. Yeah. But it's also having the wisdom to no, know, you know what, I'm going to stop doing this activity and spend time with my grandkids, or you're going to spend time doing something that's just a relationship with someone that's important. You know, might be a friend, might be someone who's going through a hard time themselves, or whatever it might be. But you, you get, get more perspective, I think, and that's yeah, that's probably wisdom. Yeah. Yeah so definitely changes
0: yeah and i guess as an entrepreneur you gain a different level of wisdom you you obviously experience a lot of different things too hypothetically if you had a a nine to five monday to friday job where you were let's say punching the clock you you would learn different things you may not have experienced some of the pitfalls or, or some of the highs that you got to experience as an
1: entrepreneur yeah, well, so that comes back to, you know, what is an entrepreneur as opposed to someone who's taking a safe, you know, role in life. Not that those safe roles are unimportant, you know, like you, because you're talking about your mum, for instance, who worked as a clerk in a hospital for a long time and filing records, which is like absolutely I have absolute respect for that role. Yeah. Like if you're a patient, and you come in and someone's, got the wrong file and all of a sudden you get the wrong medication or the wrong treatment. It's all over. It's, it's, yeah, it's serious crap. So, you know, like I have absolute admiration for people that can do those jobs well. And I think that's the, I guess, coming back to the wisdom part of it, so like, yeah, well, being an entrepreneur is actually about taking risks. And there's people who are risk. Everybody has a different risk profile. I remember uh, one of my lawyers said that to me once. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as an entrepreneur, I guess you've got to, generally have a higher risk profile than, than the average population perhaps. Yeah. But everybody has a risk profile and um, even those people that have a, you know, nine-to-five job, they're taking some risk to some extent. Well, they're taking or the
0: risk of working nine-to-five five days a week for the next 30 years. Right? Yeah, like and potentially being
1: punted out of that job because <laughs> the you know, business goes broke or, yeah. you know, a, a public servants is slightly different but yeah, yeah, you can get a rat bag boss that makes your life hell and you don't want to be doing that job anymore <laughs> too. So that's another no kind of risk. But Yeah. So yeah, I think, um, yeah, the whole idea of being an entrepreneur as uh, is more American pronunciation is, yeah, it comes back to that um, idea of, well, the, the French entre is means between and preneur is to take. Yeah. So you, you're taking something, it's like a, you, you see seeing a gap in the market. Yeah. And then you you, you grasp, see that as an opportunity and you you take the risk to, to have a crack and, and make something of that.
0: Yeah, I think the, the definition of entrepreneur is if people actually look at it, it's really clear and mm. it makes a lot of sense. Mm, I think mm. the word gets thrown around a lot in the wrong context. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually I actually recently heard of the word intrapreneur. Um, which i think there are, is a really important role mm. i think without entrepreneurs which are basically people who might have an employed role you know somebody who works for you mm. um, 9 to 5 mm. but they have a great impact on your business they, or they, or they have a good a good idea and yeah right they take that initiative yeah, they yeah. bring something to the table yeah. and and they implement it and yeah. it boosts your business yeah you can't do everything in your business you rely on these people and You might have people that just do what needs to be done, do the bare minimum, but you've also got people who really bring value day to day and they're entrepreneurs. And I don't think that they should be or feel that they are potentially less than somebody who is a high-risk-taking, high-success, high-fail-rate entrepreneur.
1: Mm.
0: They're a really important part of our, I guess, ecosystem.
1: Well, that that comes back to, to valuing people and valuing your staff, doesn't it? So... Yeah, you've got to create that environment where people are willing to risk putting their opinion out there or saying, look, this is a better way of doing this job. This job could be way more efficient and could be much more enjoyable if we did something differently. And so creating that culture. So I hadn't, I hadn't heard that term yeah. entrepreneur before, but but the reality is that definitely that's a culture instinctively I've always tried to encourage where yeah. people, if they've got a good idea and can do something smart, like, yeah, so that's kind of like- Work smarter, not harder. Mm. All, yeah. You know,
0: I'm all for it. It's you a know? great,
1: great cliche quote, but it's it's worth repeating. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, but yeah, I think part of being the entrepreneur is an entrepreneur, or but it's not. It's way goes way beyond just being an entrepreneur. I think that that idea of um, of self control. So you know, going back to my school motto, Winkit Kesey, Winkit, the the modern Latin pronunciation of um, vincit qui se vincit, which was the classic way of pronouncing it. <laughs> um, yeah, he conquers; he conquers himself, and that's that idea of, of self-discipline. There's no one that succeeds at anything without that. It's actually a basic, it's a basic life function. You know, like when Jordan Peterson, for instance, talks about people just tidy your room. You haven't got the self-discipline to tidy your own room. How the heck are you going to make a difference yeah. in your workplace or in relationships or with elsewhere in your, you know, the, let alone running an economy or a, yeah. a large business? So that, that self discipline and to motivate yourself to, to do things well comes back to the carrot and stick. So you got to have an incentive, which is the, in, in business terms is a, often a, you know, lifestyle or, or financial reward. And then you've also got the, you got the stick, which is failure, so if you go broke. And, you know, I've been in that position where I've been you know, effectively, technically bankrupt. Um, it's just that the, it took me about 15 years to pay the loan off, and I yeah. didn't actually declare myself bankrupt. And, and that's a really, really hard road to hoe, to hoe. But at the same time, it's sort of like it's a motivation <laughs> Yeah. It's a motivation to avoid the disaster yeah. and to, to reach out for the, the reward, you know. So I'm not sure why I'm going down that rabbit hole. But anyway, I did. That's what
0: we're here to do. Yeah. Deep diving on um, –
1: Deep diving down rabbit holes. Deep diving down rabbit holes. And ending up in Alice in Wonderland.
0: <laughs> Red pill, blue pill. <laughs>
1: and beyond. Hopefully, hopefully, which
0: one? Hopefully we come out the other side <laughs> somewhere. We'll see. Well, we've got yeah. um, we've got some time. You touched on something that's in the, on the first page of your introduction, which is – I guess, to your life motto, do you, still, do you still carry that life motto today? Do you still live by that? Or is it just something that's in the back of your mind sometimes that might just pop up and you go, hmm, maybe I need to
1: – You know what? We, we, all, we all wrestle with self-discipline, like whether it's just being nice to your wife or mm. nice to your, you know, the, the people you work with. Like it's, it's actually a choice we have of whether we choose to be nice or not or how we respond. So yeah, I think that I really like that the, that proverb, you know, that someone who can control themselves have their own self control. So when some, someone says something that aggravates you and and makes you angry, just controlling that anger and not not just responding in kind, that person is greater than someone who conquers a nation. You think like, mm. Whoa, okay, that's an interesting interesting proverb, that one. And I think that there's so much yeah, well obviously there's a profound level of truth to it, but it's like it actually makes your life way more enjoyable yeah. in the end. And, um, yeah, whether it's just disciplining yourself to do something nice for someone when you don't really feel like it <laughs> or whatever it may be, yeah. yeah. So it's easier said than done.
0: Absolutely. But before we go too much further um, into the book, any, I'd like just for, for anyone listening, um, I guess like the elevator pitch as to who
1: is Instrader. Yeah, well, I have. Um, I was born and christened William Richard Kendall Forsyth. Family name Forsyth is a Scottish name. Originally, is a Scottish clan, and um, the first written record of a of a Forsyth goes back to the Ragman Roll, which was back in um, uh, Braveheart's time. So William Wallace, um, after the well, after um, the Scottish defeat the. The, um, the English, um, all the people were on, it, on that Ragman Roll, was called, where they signed their names. So Osbert, Osbert Forsyth was a signatory on that. Mm-hmm. So you're going back to the 1200s. Wow. But So, so you've been around for a bit. Well, the, the clan has. <laughs> but then, ah, oh, that's what I didn't tell you the other day. So it depends how far you want to go back. Okay. So that's the first written record. But before there were lots of written records, that's why – clans or families or tribes had um, logos so the F- clan Forsyth um, logo is a Griffin Rampant and there's some records of that having come from via France from nor- from the Norse so you know the, not the Norwegians but obviously Scandinavia mm-hmm. um, and so there was a Forsath the Fronsac, who came from France to England at some point. So they think, well, that was pronounced – Forsath was pronounced differently in Scotland, and that's where that might have come from. But you're getting into, you know, ancient history, which is mystical and you can't really be definitive about it. Yeah. But I did actually go to um, Fronsac to check this out once, which is on the Dordogne River, and there's a hill there. It's called a a tertre in in French, and that was actually – Charlemagne's westernmost outpost. So Charlemagne was the yeah. high king of the Middle Ages yeah. who basically united what, what we now refer to as the West. So he unites pretty much large chunks of what's now Germany and France and gets crowned as Holy Roman Emperor in 800. So this guy's a serious achiever. And I went to his this um, castle, which is also where Eleanor of Aquitaine used to be, and her symbol used to be a falcon like a bird, you know. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, I went on to the the rampart. There's a little bit of the battlement of the, of the structure that was built originally way back then. And I actually stood there and I saw this falcon circling around. I'm going, ooh, that's a bit spooky. Wow. That's a little bit – there's a little yes. bit of a tingle. I think like, ooh, is Eleanor, Eleanor of Aquitaine around here somewhere? Yeah. Um, and uh, – but it's a sort of – yeah, it, it's a very tenuous link back to ancient history. But – Coming back to the the Forsyth clan, so we've got a – most Scottish clans have or had a a, um, a motto. So it was either French or Latin. A lot of a lot of um, Scottish clans, because of the close links to France, had um, French mottos, but ours happened to be a Latin motto, and that was Instarata Ruini, which is still the clan Forsyth uh, motto today. In fact, the clan Forsyth was – only reinstituted as a clan in the 1970s after uh, being, and that was actually Queen Elizabeth II who reinstituted clans because of the wars between the English and the French. clans. Scottish clans were banned for centuries. Okay. <laughs> um, so I was actually there, actually, when that, in the Clan Forsyth in Australia, when they actually got official recognition by the Crown again, which is in my lifetime. Yeah. Anyway, enough to say that. The, um, the motto, Instarata Ruini, is Latin for um, Restorer of the Ruins, and that comes from the prophet Isaiah where he's prophesying about how this destroyed city of Jerusalem is one day going to be rebuilt and there's going to be a restorer who will build the walls and yep. a safe place for people to live. It's a noble and lofty uh, motto to have as a clan, don't know how I'm doing that. Maybe I'm restoring the walls of entrepreneurship, of <laughs> self-discipline, of looking after yourself. Not that I'm in, not that I'm much bloody good at it, but you know that's <laughs> that's the, the task I've been given. How
0: old were you when you decided to to take on that that name? Forty. Forty.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I got that change at the name forty. Much to my wife's and my eldest daughter's distress <laughs> at the time, they were quite horrified. But I just felt it was something I had to do, and so I did it. Yep. I thought, well, no one's going to die. It might upset some people, but no one's going to be physically hurt as. A but result. I mean, it's
0: just as it's just a, a word. It's a name. I mean, to you, it carries value. But how you're referred to, whether it be mate or innie or it's 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 a name that you refer yourself to. Why would that upset people?
1: Oh well, for my wife, it's very personal. But you know, she married Will Forsyth. She didn't marry in So for her, it's sort of like a changing the game without yeah, sort okay. of changing the game. So she Fair she, she prefers calling me by my my name that I was christened with. Sorry. Does she still? When she's angry with me.
0: <laughs> We've all got our name. A
1: bit like another name. Yeah, should we, I say Jeffrey? Oh, <laughs> uh, depends. Am I in trouble yet? <laughs> yeah, you got it. That's how it works.
0: Let's look a little bit more. At the introduction and the introduction, you really sort of go through quite a bit on, I guess your your visions to the world, to the way that I guess you see the world uh, and how you've experienced it. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a little bit of talk in here about um, you know, communism. Yep. Anti-capitalism. Yep. Where do you see that standing right now in the way that the world is now to, I guess, when you first, you know, say your mid to late 20s, when you really started to to come into your own as an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, I didn't really take any time to think about bigger stuff like that. And even though I don't refer to, to communism, I certainly refer to capitalism, which the crazy thing is that the reality is that we're all dealing with capital in the form of savings and you know, everybody wants to have some savings that they can control for themselves and get on with life, whether it's looking after their kids or looking after themselves or their health or their, you know, their having something better to place to live in or whatever it is, it all comes from actually spending less money than we earn and then having some money spared to to do some some good things with it. So even though capitalism has a really dirty kind of connotation these days through impolitical kind of back and forth, um, it's the reality of how we actually all operate as human beings. And and, and the privilege is that we get to decide what we do with our own hard-earned savings rather than someone else telling us what we have to do with our hard-earned savings, which is how communism works, basically. That's socialism is someone else coming in and telling you how you will spend your money or they'll take their money from you and then they'll give it back to you in the form that they say is appropriate. It's not you actually deciding as an individual how you want to do it or how you want to use it for the best. And so I think that's it's an extraordinary privilege that we have. And that sort of, you know, kind of – so, yeah, as a young guy, I never really can think about that sort of stuff at all. But I think now with the perspective, I can see the danger of um, if that's – left to run its course and it's not checked and it's not called out for what it is that actually communism is bullcrap <laughs> and the free enterprise economy that we've grown up is actually the the most liberating and and free of all free way you can actually operate as a human being from not just a financial economic point of view but also from a social point of view of how you relate to other people and how you can help other people and how you can also... Benefit yourself and your own family, and uh, yeah, I think that the whole idea of um, you know you get people the, the, the dynamic that's going on is sort of like well, in a way, socialism is sort of like it's kind of like coveting what other people have. I haven't I haven't been able to earn that. I haven't been able to build up that business, and this is the huge kind of debate that's really intensifying in America at the moment with the Democratic. Primary elections, you know, you got Bernie Sanders, who's a communist, who's the front runner for that that um, position, and the ramifications for that are catastrophic if he actually does get that nomination. And there's a lot of naive people think that, oh, no, he's a democratic socialist. Well, they're kind of that's an oxymoron. If you're democratic, or you're socialist, and the socialist, they they're determining. What you, how you will vote and what you will get. It's not like you don't have a vote in it. That's the, the two conflicting ideologies, you know. And the point of that is that with the free enterprise economy that we have, that's what's under threat if that kind of notion isn't checked and isn't sort of called out for what it is. Mm. And and so, you know, another thing would be like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, it's all about greed, greedy capitalism and think like, you know, the rich just get richer and the poor get poorer. And then I, you know – heard something the other day that the average American fortune 500 company only lasts for about 30 years and that those companies they're not fixed they don't stay there it's like if a company does well they rise up so you know we were talking before about um, you know Apple's big corporation now but before they kind of before that there was Microsoft and they you know kind of leapfrogged Microsoft and Microsoft leapfrogged IBM and those those companies don't stay static and fixed, and then the most, the next guy with the best idea, and the you know, if you look at all the you know, um, IT companies that are that are ruling the you know economy to a large extent, you know, like all the social media kind of enterprises, and Google and Facebook, yeah, today, yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah, and and Instagram. Well, obviously Facebook owns Instagram, goes, Instagram Facebook. Yeah. yeah. So you know, and and Amazon. So they're like you know, they're they they were not there even fifteen years ago, no. effectively, you know. So like that's. So that is not to say, either oh, the rich just get richer and the poor get poor. Well, actually, no, you can actually make a difference yourself. You don't have to be a victim like that. You can actually say, you know what, I can actually improve my lot in life by having a go, taking a risk, making a change, doing something different, you know, even if it's changing jobs because you're not happy in the, the, the job you've got. Well, fine, you know, try and get a better job, do a better job. Maybe you get rewarded more for it because your boss will see, wow, that guy's really putting in the effort. We need to keep that guy. We don't want to lose him. Maybe we need to pay him a little bit more to keep him, you know. So yeah, there's it's more of that idea of um the fact that we we're in control of our own destinies and that's an extraordinary privilege that we have in Australia still. And but potentially that's under threat by that kind of lazy thinking that, you know, communism's okay. Well, actually it's not. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I want to go back on something just that you mentioned that you used the word risk um, and we, we are sort of looking a little bit historic, so to speak, on you know, how, how the world has changed a little bit. When we look at risk, do you think that we're all born with the same risk-taking capacity and that it's manipulated as we, as we grow up based on maybe where we're brought up, um, the circumstance of which we're brought up, to take more risk and feel comfortable with it or to not feel so comfortable with risk taking and take, uh, I guess, more comfortable, make more comfortable decisions, do you think that that's manipulated by things like communism, capitalism, or at least just the the values that maybe our upbringings gave us?
1: I think we all have a different risk profile. And... Your risk profile can change over time. So I can remember, for instance, having a punt on the Coffee Futures Exchange. Mm. And I can remember at the time thinking, oh, man, this is scary. Like, whoa, like what am I doing here? Like should I do this or shouldn't I? Whereas now I just wouldn't even give that a second thought. Like I just think, no, it's a good time, you know, coming into a Southern Hemisphere winter, which is always the time for a likely frost in Brazil, Then And given that Brazil produces 30-40% of the world's crop, if something happens there, the whole – and the moment, the whole supply-demand chain globally is an interesting little tightrope at the moment. So it's been changing over the last 20 years where demand has steadily been growing. And production has actually just been able to keep pace, but it's the way the the coffee tree works, it's it's biannual. So – you have a, the tree has in, in, so takes take Brazil will have a normally have a big harvest one year, and the next year the, all the trees will go into recovery, and have a smaller harvest. And the following year you'll have a bigger harvest. So it's normally that's what I mean by by annual. So have a big crop one year, a smaller crop next yeah. year. But through all the agronomic advances, Brazil's actually been able to continually increase their output. They're not they don't have as much area under cultivation, but they're making each hectare more productive. So it's really really smart. Um, you know, agronomy, agronomy um, practices. But that whole um, supply demand chain is a really, really, what's the word? It's a very potentially fragile equation. So the gap's been narrowing. So there used to be lots of surplus coffee growing around the world. Mm-hmm. This is a long way from getting a risk, but this is a this is big risk world we're running a huge risk in terms of globally the production keeping up with demand. And demand at some point has it's stripped out all the surplus coffee, so there's no surplus coffees anymore. And if Brazil reverts to an old normal year, then there'll be there won't be enough coffee in the world to supply demand. So in other words, you know, a coffee roaster like us, like a will go. we we actually book our coffee in ahead. But smaller guys who are just buying on the spot price, so they go into their green broker and say, well, I just, well what, what coffees you got available this week?
0: And they'll sort of work within their budget?
1: Well, yeah, but they'll, they'll buy whatever's available at the time. They're not, they're not booking coffees in ahead in advance and locking you know, yeah, contracts to in. to ensure
0: that their company is going to get access to that at a fixed price. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: So what will happen to them, which is what happened, the last really big frost was back in 1994 thereabouts is when I was trading coffee futures back then. And the really big one was in the in the nineteen seventies, where they called it the Black Frost, and they actually changed a lot of the places where they grew coffee in Brazil, so they weren't in frost-prone areas. Um, so it's mitigated that to some extent. But if there is a sh- physical shortage, so and, the, and crops are actually, or if there's a disease, which happened in, you know, happens sometime, time you got rust, you got worm infestations. There's all different, obviously not to mention coronavirus. I don't think there is a coronavirus for coffee plants, but <laughs> but um, if that happens, then those poor little roasters who are actually buying their <coughs> coffee at a spot price from their importer because they're not big enough to bring in a container load themselves, yeah, so they've got to go through brokers or bring in small amounts directly themselves. Then what will happen is they'll go back to their exporter or they'll go back to the importer and the next week if there's been a huge you know, crop damage. So, like a, a large frost or something. Um, and their price will have doubled or tripled in the space of a few weeks. All of a sudden, instead of selling their coffee to a cafe for 30 bucks a kilo, they've got to go in at 90 or 100 bucks a kilo. Well, that's unsustainable. The cafe's yeah. selling saying, Well, I can still get just as good coffee from the other supplier who's actually hedged their Prices and I can still get it for might not be thirty bucks, might be forty bucks a kilo now, but I can kind of manage and work within that, and my business can still survive. So there's huge risk being run globally with the way that all works. And the other, the other thing that's interesting on the just to you know deep dive into coffee futures. Um, so the average New York Sea price historically is about a dollar US a pound. So that's how they measure. Um, coffee in on, on the futures market. And a contract, if you want to buy a futures contract, it's 37,500 pounds, which is near enough to 90,200 kilos, which is what fits in a 20-foot container. So that's how the whole system is designed to work. Um, but that $1.26 a pound, that's an historical average. That doesn't allow for inflation. So when 20 years ago – you know, I was trading futures and it went from about eighty cents up to about two dollars seventy, something like that wow. from memory, a pound. So that's almost uh, what's out a three three hundred and fifty percent increase, mm-hmm. you know. So um if you were to extrapolate that and, say, and allow for inflation, so instead of being a dollar twenty six, so you've you know, you've got three percent inflation a year over twenty years, you know. So you've got to say the the average price if you're allowing just for inflation should be instead of a dollar twenty six average, should be dollar eighty for argument's sake as a starting point and then you're tripling that well then you're getting up to like five dollars fifty somewhere six dollars a pound that hasn't the coffee futures price has never even got there the highest it's ever got was about just over three bucks us a pound and that created mayhem so we're sitting on an absolute unprecedented level of risk in that in that term and and what the other thing that complicates it is that even twenty years ago when there's a you know th- when I was trading futures back then, that, that was the sharpest bull rise in the coffee market in history at that point. Wow. And And you got it. And I, I was writing you, it. You timed it. <laughs> I was riding it. What no no expertise there. That was just a
0: although do I recall that your father was a futures broker?
1: Brother my father in law.
0: Your father in law, yeah, okay. Yeah, yes. Was he on the scene at this time? Yeah, yeah. Did he yeah. did he direct you at all? Yeah, he gave me you?
1: gave okay. me a few tips, yeah. yeah. Like hey. did he see that coming? Oh no futures trade is a he he wasn't a screen jockey, he was just a you know, obviously a broker, so he okay. was helping people make their, you know, punts however they wanted to do them. And and office, office and that, that whole system is actually set up for a really good reason. It's trying to smooth out the ups and downs and the vagaries of those commodity markets. So so the farmers can get something, the the customers can depend on the price. It's all predictable, but um, it's to help them make it more predictable. But yeah, this coffee, I mean, futures traders are you know can be they're, they're following the, the graphs basically. So they'll see a, a graph line and. And they call them charts, so they follow their charts, and they'll have a different lines in their charts, and thinks that something's going to work. But if that's removed from the fundamentals of well, the fundamentals are that so much coffee's being grown, demand's increasing at you know a certain rate. At some point, that crosses over, so that the chart will follow that. But to get ahead of the game, you've got to actually see what the fundamentals are that are underlying the charts. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. The other thing that's changed is that in the last twenty years, so if we go back, yes, you go back to
0: two thousand.
1: Oh, if you go back twenty, yeah, go back, go back to even twenty years. In that time, the the other thing that's the other thing that's changed is the exponential growth of um, uh, hedge funds and sovereign funds who will have you know global investment strategies, so they'll. Sloshed trillions of dollars into might be equities if all of a sudden they think shares price is going to be really good. Although, they might. at the moment, they're not putting much in um, interest, you know, Probably. cash, cash yeah. at the bank because it's, the interest rates are either negative in in some countries like Japan, or so you're not. Got yeah, no, well, you, get, you got to pay to keep. I mean, that's like yeah, exactly. I mean, invest. So you, you got no international. Not cases. if you have not got capital growth, you got plan, you know, designated capital loss. Yeah, and you. Which is not investment, so it's kind of like a weird. What's
0: the opposite word to investment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> disinvestment, <laughs> yeah, yeah, disinvestment. Um, so yeah, that's the other thing that hasn't been. So you got you got inflation hasn't been allowed for in the New York Sea price, which is how you all all is are traded on the New on the New York Futures Exchange. So. You, but you also haven't got the, all that extra cash capital that yeah just so the, normally what they do is they'll, they like I say the, the global traders will then say well we've got to put into soft commodities as opposed so soft commodities are coffee you know corn pork bellies orange frozen orange juice all the all the like food commodities whereas hard commodities like gold and minerals and stuff is a separate basket but but basically they'll they'll just slosh trillions in in and out of those different baskets so that can completely distort a market. Way beyond any of the fundamentals, so it's another mind-bending, reality-altering. You know, um, given on a on a trading basis, if you're trading, you know, coffee futures, it just totally distorts the market.
0: Do you think talking about the sea market? There's there's a bit of topical conversation around C market at the moment. Oh, is um, through uh-huh. um, roasters, international roasters, mm. reading their blogs and that sort of thing. Mm. Do you think that we'd see the end of the sea market, or do you think without the sea market, coffee bean growers and farmers would be taking a much larger risk in having a farm at all?
1: Yeah, that's a pretty short sighted view, I think. So, you have that's people haven't lived long enough in the coffee industry saying that I would suggest because um, they used to have. Uh, the ICO or the International Coffee Organization used to have quotas for producing countries. So basically, they tried to control it in a different way. That was a more that was an imposed quota for a producing country. And if but if they produced more, then they had to basically sell on the black market because they, they were given the quota that they could sell, or they'd stockpile it. And so that actually became dysfunctional. So that's an alternative system. So I mean, the New York we was still operating. With those quotas as well, but the the quotas actually if you take away the New York Sea as a trading mechanism for large quantities of coffee that can be traded transparently that can be verified by cupping, which as you know, like that's one of the reasons we do cupping.
0: yeah, well obviously like just sort of touching on cup of excellence and that gives the opportunity for for farmers to auction off their coffee yeah based, based on you know how good it is as sure. well, without having to what I guess submit to the c market's price
1: so cup vixen's is a great program and i've been involved in it and i think it's doing some great stuff no question but it's a really really small percentage of 1% of a farm's output so for a farm to be viable they have to sell their they, people are now referring to them as blenders so they've got to they've got to sell their lower grade coffees that don't have those exquisite you know rare you know kind of you know, Panama geisha style yeah. bouquet or yeah. bouquet, however you want to say it. Um, so they're, they're really – so a farm can't exist just on that 0.1 of 1% of their crop. So they need to sell their whole crop. So then it's a question of how they sell the bulk, a lot of their their harvest and get something decent for it and how the mechanism for that works, which is actually their real bread and butter. So the Cup of Excellence is – has actually changed the perception of um, different origins. So you know, whether it's Honduras or you know, or even Brazil for that matter, that all of a sudden there's there's all these. I remember there's a lot of, used to be a lot of prejudice against Brazilian coffees by different roasters. Many of them North American roasters who were sort of because of their proximity to Central America, they saw Central American coffees as being you know, so Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, um, Panama, Costa Rica, you know, as being more uh, exotic. Um, whereas Brazil was seen as more kind of commercial and, and lower grade. So they, they would refuse to use Brazilian coffees. I think, well, that's absolute madness. There's some fantastic Brazilian coffees and especially Brazilian coffees. So Coffee Excellence actually originally started in effectively in Brazil through um, Dr. Illy and his his coffee competitions, and then it sort of spread from there. So the answer to the question is that you actually need both. So that's a – that basic trading mechanism on the New York Sea is a fundamental mechanism to be able for international traders to have some security of supply for their customers and manage their businesses. It's a business management tool. And if you get rid of that, the the alternatives are pretty chaotic. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. yeah, well, I guess, I mean, you, you can't forecast both sides, the, the roaster – can't forecast no, exactly, and the farmer can't forecast. Yeah, I guess without that, yeah, at least that bottom line. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The farmer can pick and choose, and they do when they want to sell based on the New York season. They say, well, that's not high enough. We're going to hold on to stock a bit, and not artificially manipulating it, but they're they're just they're playing their side of the game to say, well, I want more for this coffee. I don't want to sell it so cheaply. And that, I think those discussions have, uh, are probably bubbling up because you know at the moment the you know coffee new york sea price is fairly low from a historical point of view so if you take it used to be that um fair trade for instance took a historical average and then put 10 cents a, ki- a pound on top as their base level that they would guarantee that the farmers would get they they tend to put 10 cents on top of whatever the going rate is so there's some premium that goes back to the farmers yeah, and and that
0: all comes back to the initial part of this conversation was risk. Um, mm. and I, I'm seeing there now that the New York Sea helps mitigate the risk yeah. from both sides. Yeah. And then going sort of a little bit further back again, you decided to take a risk on on the futures commodities there and you won. Now, from memory, you also went back again and had another crack. Yeah. How did
1: that go? Well, that was the scary part. Because I had enough to – on my initial punt to get a new bathroom for my wife. And I thought that's – I'm just going to be humble. I don't want to be greedy. That's fine. That's, you know, something nice I can do with it. But then I – yeah, I got – it was a dream. I had a dream. I thought, what's that all about? Yeah. And then on the basis of that, I remember really clearly, yeah, I was about to get on the freeway there. Well, what's now the M1? To head home, and I thought, oh, should I? Shouldn't I? And I thought, not nah, going to risk it all again. And then, yeah that, that was a that was a nice reward for yeah. taking that risk. But it could have very easily turned out to be a heap of ashes and nothing to show for it. So that's the risk.
0: Have you, from your early stages, did you take more risk as you were younger, and and you've taken more calculated risks, obviously with with your learnings? But do you find that you take bigger risks now? Or did you take bigger risks when
1: you were younger? No, I think I'm actually taking bigger risks now, but they're yeah, definitely more calculated and measured. Mm-hmm. And um, and the biggest mistakes I think I've made in my life are the ones where I haven't actually followed that instinctive little voice in my head, you know, to back myself.
0: Yeah, and that's a risk in itself—is not listening to your gut. Yeah. Are you are you a gut decision maker?
1: Yeah. I think so, but you know, you try. Uh, look, you can't. You can't just toss a coin. You can toss a coin when you've done all your homework, and you've done all your due diligence, and you've got two com- equally competing, you know, alternatives that yep. you've got to choose between. And you think, look, I've, I've exhausted my avenues for research here. I've exhausted my <laughs> my ability to be able to. Figure out what – and and then – so that's the – there's another ancient proverb, you know, the dice are cast, but the decision is wholly from God, you know. So it's so like, well, whether you believe in fate or chance, the reality is that sometimes, you know, someone like Kerry Packer was a gambler for a reason because if you're, if you're highly intelligent and you're weighing up all competing alternatives, then sometimes in the end you're just got to move ahead and you've got to make a decision. And if you can't make a decision, then that's worse than making a decision. So – Yeah, sometimes you just toss the coin and move on.
0: (laughs) It's all very interesting, and um, I'm hoping that some of the deep dives that we got to take just there um, were insightful to some people, uh, interesting, and uh, hopefully we'll continue, you know, we're going to get into um, some of the further lessons that you talk about during your book in, in some other episodes figuring out you know who you can trust um, the, the joyful world of counting.
1: <laughs> that's that's <laughs> gonna be accountants are very creative people
0: mm. people don't think they are but they are
1: well and a good accountant is very creative
0: yeah and, and we're gonna in really a good way. get into that next time thank you Instrada, for thank you jeff has been fun with that and, it's uh, good until next time
1: Until next time.